When I was a wee lad, one of my favorite set of stories were the stories of the King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. One particular story, maybe the most well-known and famous, is the story of St. George and the Dragon. You familiar with this story, St. George and the Dragon? It's where there's this, you know, town in medieval England, and there's a dragon who is basically preventing the town from having access to their water supply and causing the town to suffer, amongst other things that dragons are known to do, right? I mean, dragons, when you get a dragon in your neighborhood, you know you're in trouble, okay? So these folks were in trouble. The dragon was causing immense suffering, and they couldn't get access to the help that they needed, to the provision that was there for them. And of course, in rides St. George, the knight on his horse. Da-da-da-da, right? We know the story well. You know, those villagers, as they're terrorized by the dragon, in the story, they feel helpless. And in many ways, as we encounter evil, as we encounter sin, not just our own sin, but maybe especially the sin of our culture, the the collective sin as a people group that just bad things are happening because we are bad people, right? As As we are impacted by evil and by sin, we might feel like those helpless villagers. Like there's nothing to be done. There's no way we're going to get access to that water. As uh, philosophers say, stuff happens. You just shrug your shoulders. Nothing you can do. It's just stuff. There's no purpose in our suffering. There's no grand story. There's no uh, secret code to explain what's going on. You know what? Life is just not that great. And even as we live in a time of material prosperity in our culture, we live in a time of technological wonder and, and just marvels, you know, that what technology can do. In many ways, we're just like those simple villagers as we face evil and suffering, wondering, is there a purpose to what's going on in my life? Now, as we've been going through Revelation, we have learned very clearly that the book of Revelation presupposes the persecution of the church. The, the idea is not if the church will suffer, it's when you suffer. You need to know this information about what God is doing in history to equip you to respond in faith to the difficulties that we face. Revelation is a vision given to equip the church to navigate days filled with evil because there's a dragon in our neighborhood. It is no mistake, brothers and sisters, that in Genesis chapter 3, Satan takes the form of a serpent. Now, you know my opinion on snakes. It's basically the main reason we don't camp. Uh, You don't sleep on the ground because snakes are on the ground. Except in New Zealand, that's a long story. Anyway, yeah, it's a snake. There's, there's a snake, there's a serpent, there's a dragon in our neighborhood. And what is that ancient serpent doing? He is working to subvert the church. Now, that is not a theory. That is what is revealed to us in crystal clear terms, albeit visionary form, in Revelation chapter 12 this morning. As we look at this passage, we're going to be reminded that this, this picture of Satan attacking the church, it's not a hypothetical, 
it is very much real. And I would just remind you of what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 6 when he says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil and the spiritual forces of the heavens. Basically, Paul's acknowledging that we are in a daily battle spiritually. Your biggest problem isn't a physical problem. Your biggest problem is that there's a dragon in our neighborhood. And what happens in Revelation 12 is we get a, a vision, a picture, right, of what? Of this current situation. Now, some of that situation has to be dealt with with what happened in the past. And so we're going to talk about a little bit about the incarnation this morning. Some of it has to do with where things are going but really, the idea of the vision we get in chapter 12 is to say, this is why the church faces such difficult circumstances and Christians face difficult circumstances today. So basically, it functions in that sense. So we'll talk about it as we go through. The point of it is to equip us to respond to those difficult circumstances with faith. I don't know what it is that you are facing or what you will face, but I know that what's revealed here gives us great hope. In some senses, chapter 12 is this moment where it's like the curtain is pulled back and we get to see the cosmic battle going on that we don't always get to see. Now, why reveal that? Because God knows you and I need confidence, not in ourselves, but in him. So let's pick it up in verse 1. Let's unpack this vision and see what's going on here and how it helps us. So, Chapter 12 of Revelation, verse 1. Remember, John has been summoned up into heaven. Chapter 11 has detailed the suffering of the church in witness, but also it's, it's detailed the seventh trumpet, and uh, there's a discussion about whether or not chapters 12, 13, and 14 are the seventh trumpet. Are they a pause? Either way, they're related to the seventh trumpet, so I don't think there's a, a lot that impacts our understanding of the text. But the seventh trumpet announces the kingdom of, of the world has now become the kingdom of our God and of his Messiah. So this is the, the picture of how it's going to play out. But before we get to that, there's an important revelation here about the nature of the current situation. Why must we struggle? Watch verse 1 of chapter 12. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Now, if you pause there, this is why we put the seatbelts in this morning, okay? Because we haven't even gotten to the dragon yet. We already, we already have a very interesting picture we have this, this great sign appearing in heaven, which is a woman who's clothed with the sun. She's beaming, glowing is the idea. The moon's under her feet, and there's a crown of 12 stars on her head. We don't get an explanation of all the facets of this woman's appearance. We'll, we'll get introduced more uh, to her in just a moment. But the 12 stars specifically are often really kind of interesting to people. I think maybe the best uh, idea here is possibly that the 12 stars signify the 12 tribes of Israel. And as we'll see, this woman is the one who will give birth to the Messiah. Although she's not Mary, we wouldn't limit her to being a reference to Mary. She probably represents the people of God because God promised to Abraham that from his descendants would come the rescuer. And so she stands uh, corporately here as an individual. She stands for the, the corporate body of the people of God from whom the Messiah would come. That will be made crystal clear by the end of our section this morning. But where we meet her is when she's pregnant with this rescuer, the Messiah. Watch verse 2. She was pregnant and cried out in labor and agony as she was about to give birth. You know, Pastor Jesse gave us a little nod to this part of the story in singing He Who is Mighty this morning, because we're thinking here about the arrival of the Messiah. So we're going back in time, right? And we're thinking about the arrival of the Messiah. But watch verse 3. It wasn't so simple. 
Then another sign appeared in heaven. There was a great, fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on its heads were seven crowns. This dragon is described in terms that are consistent with some of the the beasts in in Daniel chapter 7. The idea here is that the dragon has power and authority, and this dragon is uh, equipped with the capacity to cause great suffering. The color red here is ominous, is the idea. And so here we have this, this glowing woman, and she's about to give birth to the Messiah, but then we all of a sudden, dun, 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 here comes the dragon. Watch verse 4. Its tail swept away a third of the stars in heaven and hurled them to the earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that when she did give birth, it might devour her child. Again, this is a pictorial representation of the incarnation, the arrival of Jesus into the world. The the dragon's tail swiping stars out of the heaven. That's actually a reference to Daniel chapter 8. And it's the image there in Daniel of stars falling to the sky. It's... It presents in a visionary format the suffering of the church under persecution. That Antiochus, in that, in that day, Daniel was prophesying about Antiochus IV and how he would actually oppress the, the people of God and that the people of God would suffer temporarily. And so here the dragon is the one who makes that happen. That's the connection to Daniel 8. But here, how, how, how does it play out? Well, the dragon, right, at the moment of incarnation, as the Messiah is about to be born, the dragon is crouched, ready to devour this helpless baby as soon as the baby comes into the world. The dragon stands opposed to the mission of the Messiah. The dragon wants to do everything in its power to destroy the Messiah and destroy the Messiah's work. That's what's pictured here. It's a vivid picture, right? Because the reality of, of Satan standing against the work of God is so crucial, it's so essential that we understand it, that it's presented here in these highly memorable images. There's that big dragon, and there's with the power and the authority, raging, ready to just destroy this helpless baby. It is not a fair fight. Or is it? Verse 5. She gave birth to a son, and most of your Bibles there, son will be capitalized. She gave birth to a son, a male who is going to rule all nations with an iron rod. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Some of you were nervous there for a second about what was going to happen, right? The dragon's crouched, ready to devour. Well, who's born? It's the son. And the language here in verse 5 refers back to Psalm 2, verse 9. It talks about the Messiah's work and having that, that iron scepter to rule over the nations. The son is born, the promised son, who will indeed finally make all wrongs right. We've been introduced to this concept over and over in Revelation, but once again, Psalm 2 kind of rings true that he's going to correct what's wrong in the nations. He's going to correct what's wrong in the world, reigning with that iron rod. And the the dragon wants to kill that son, but before the dragon can swipe, what happens? Well, he is caught up to God and to his throne. Now, that's a really short summary there, and it skips basically all of Jesus' life and his death and the resurrection, but it cuts straight to the ascension. But the rest of it, of course, is assumed that we understand that that son was born, that that son, despite Satan's opposition, that that son ministered effectively, that he died for our sins and he rose from the dead. And after he rose tranquilly from the dead and, and appeared to his disciples, he ascended into heaven. Verse 6. The woman fled into the wilderness 
where she had a place prepared by God to be nourished there for 1,260 days. That's that three-and-a-half-year number that we're familiar with. It's picked up on from Daniel. Why? Because that's a time of, of, of uh, a chunk of time where the church will suffer, but God will still show his faithfulness. That's the significance behind that number. What's going on here? Well, the first thing we need to learn this morning from this vision is that Satan rages against the work of the Messiah. Satan rages against the work of the Messiah. We go to Luke chapter 4 or Matthew and we read about Jesus being led into the wilderness. And what happens in the wilderness? Satan seeks to derail the mission of the Messiah through temptation. Was he successful? No. We could go back to Matthew 2 and read about when Jesus was born and Herod the king tries to kill off all the little infants in Bethlehem under a certain age because he's trying to stop the work of the Messiah. We, we could go to John, and we could, or excuse me, Luke chapter 22, and we could read about Judas betraying Jesus. And the wording in Luke 22, verse 3, is that Satan entered Judas. And then Judas goes into negotiations with the leaders to betray Jesus. You need to know that when Jesus arrived on earth, he arrived in hostile territory. He arrived at a moment when Satan was opposing his work in every way that he could. And this is the craziest part. Because God is sovereign and good, he uses Satan's attempts to thwart the mission to accomplish the mission. That's how great our God is. The fact of the matter remains that Satan rages against the work of the Messiah. The wilderness here that the woman flees to is not a place of judgment. It's a place of nourishment. Even though it's a difficult place, you could, you could refer to it as a place of testing, it's still a place of nourishment. And that's, by the way, consistent with how we see the wilderness play out in the biblical story. You remember when God rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt, he brought them uh, to worship him at, at Mount Sinai, and then they head into the wilderness. What happens in the wilderness? Well, they are tested, and yes, the tests expose their failure, but also in the wilderness, what happens? God provides. They need water. They can't get the water. He provides the water. They need food. He provides the food. He shows himself to be trustworthy even in the midst of difficult circumstances we could go back to jesus's temptation in the wilderness yes it's a difficult time but in that time jesus proves the faithfulness of god and his provision the wilderness is not a place of judgment maybe maybe we're in the wilderness you know i have a lot of choice adjectives for new jersey new jersey is it wildernessy i don't know like, wildernessy isn't a word, but whatever, you know, it's... We might be in the wilderness. In a difficult place, circumstantially, and of course it need not be physical, right? We could be in a difficult place, emotionally, the situation in the family, the situation at work. Maybe, it's, maybe it is a physical situation with our health. Spiritually, we could be in that position where we are being tested and there is temptation, it seems like, everywhere we look. But if you're in the wilderness this morning, you need to know that although Satan rages against the work of the Messiah, he cannot be successful. There are some key truths here, I think, just even in this brief introduction to the vision here, that we need to realize about the wilderness. First of all, God has not abandoned us. God has not abandoned us in the wilderness. Second, Rome can't save you. There's one potential uh, interpretive point here that the woman, this glorious woman, often in uh, ancient Roman, um, basically patriotic mythology, the, the city of Rome, the goddess Roma, was cast in this 
terms of a beautiful woman who's the provider, you know, for the people. And the idea here is that basically God provides not through Rome, but through the Messiah. And so this woman is kind of like a counter to perhaps putting your hope in Rome. Well, how does that hit us? Well, we might seek in the wilderness to find provision in security with the government, in security from our jobs, in financial security, right, in relational, emotional security. A worldly source of provision is the idea, but Rome can't save you. Also, as we may be in the wilderness, we need to beware seven-headed snakes. You want to watch out for those, right? What's the idea? The idea is that, as we're going to see more clearly as the passage continues, that, that Satan is very much active today, seeking to cause us harm. Although in the vision he's pre- presented as the scary red dragon, you need to know that the scary red dragon is a real being, that Satan does exist. And even as he temporarily rages against God's work, that means we need to be ready to deal with those temptations. More on that as we move through the passage. We also need to know that God ordains the wilderness for our good. It's a place of nourishment, even though it's difficult. It's actually counterintuitive. How do you find nourishment in the wilderness when there's not provision? Well, that's the point, that God does it in a special and miraculous way. And maybe most importantly, as we think about the wilderness, the suffering that we may experience because of evil in the world is temporary. It is not the final word, right? Well, how can we be sure? Watch verse 7. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels also fought, but he could not prevail, and there was no place for them in heaven any longer. Just pause right here, verses 7 and 8, okay? There's a a difference of opinion as to when this happens, okay? I think the best reading and the most natural reading is to talk about how this relates to the arrival of the Messiah and Satan's opposition to the Messiah's work, okay? This is a spiritual battle, and as we'll see, the... the, uh, the, uh, the victory, the, con- the conclusive victory happens on the cross. That's where the victory is won. Uh, if you're a big fan of Paradise Lost, uh, my, my friend Johnny Milton interpreted this to be referring to a pre-creation rebellion of Satan against the Lord. And while it's kind of possible, it's not really, I think, the best reading here. And most commentators acknowledge that's probably not the most likely reading. Some commentators think this is a yet future rebellion, but again, that doesn't seem to fit the, the context, and especially as we get to the end of the section this morning, that will become clear that that's probably not what's primarily in view. Okay, so Jesus arrives, and at that moment, war breaks out in heaven, and Michael, right, the archangel, he fights uh, against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fight back. We also call the dragon's angels demons, remember? But in verse 8, he could not prevail. And so he's... He's cast out of heaven, verse 9. So the great dragon was thrown out. And then, just so we're clear on who we're talking about, in case we don't have our visionary ears on, right? He says, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. Are we clear yet about who we're talking about, right? Don't miss it. So the ancient serpent, the devil, Satan, the one who deceives the whole world, he was thrown down to earth and his angels with him. That's all good? Unless you live on earth. That's where this is going. Wait a minute, what? There's a snake in our neighborhood. Of course, we know that Satan is the one who deceives the whole world. He is a liar. 
fact, in John 8, Jesus tells us he's the father of lies, the originator of deception, manipulation. And for the moment, he's active on earth. But his presence on earth and the trouble that that entails does not mean God is not working. Watch verse 10. This is really crucial to the vision. It says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have now come. Because the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night, he has been thrown down. We just pause there. This verse is interesting because on the one hand, it looks like, oh, the, the ultimate victory is done. And yes, that's true. The, the decisive battle has been won. But in the meantime, Satan does have a temporary time where he's active on earth. That activity does not mean the victory has not been won. And so in the vision, he hears the loud voice emphasizing salvation has come. The power and kingdom of God has come. The authority of the Messiah that has come now. When did it come? In the arrival of the Messiah in the incarnation that Satan wanted to stop. He wanted to, to kill that baby when he was born. But he failed in that. Why? Because God's plan moves forward. Because his kingdom has come. And it is coming yet in his fullness, as we learned last week. The accuser has been thrown down. He, he is not. He no longer has that access that he once had in heaven. So we're victorious. We have victory in Jesus. His kingdom has come. How? Verse 11. Watch this. They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Halfway through verse 11, watch it. They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. The villagers don't defeat the dragon. They need a knight to do that. And in the story, St. George slays the dragon. But in real life, what happened was that Jesus crushed the head of the serpent by giving his own life for us. It's the sacrificial blood of the lamb that gets it done. That's where we have victory. That's why Satan wasn't successful in his rebellion. And that's why he cannot ultimately be successful in his mission to oppose the work of God in building his kingdom. So they conquered him, verse 11, by the blood of the lamb, but secondly, by the word of their testimony. This is, this is about the fact that believers are victorious because they've trusted in the Lamb and because they live in light of that faith. That their lives tell a story. They bring a message, this testimony that says, I will not compromise. I will not give in to temptation. I refuse to live as I used to live. I refuse to live as Rome tells me to live. I refuse to live as my neighbors want me to live. Why? Because I've trusted in Christ. Because the gospel has changed me. That's the word of their testimony. It is a message, it's verbal, but it's also lived out. And we know that by the rest of the verse. They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not love their lives to the point of death. You know I like the CSB, but Tyndale said it better. They loved not their lives. They loved not their lives to the point of death. Why? Because in certain places and in certain times, following Jesus means dying a premature death. It may come to that. They conquered the dragon by giving their very lives because of the lamb. 
Therefore, verse 12, rejoice you heavens and you who dwell in them. Again, the decisive battle has been won. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you with great fury, because he knows his time is short. The devil is throwing a fit. In verses 7 to 12 this morning, we learn that our victory over Satan, and I forgive me the typo there in your bulletin, it's our victory over Satan. Our victory over Satan is through the Lamb. Our victory over Satan is through the Lamb. When you think about the decisive blow being struck at the cross, we can think back to the Gospel of John, where Jesus tells us in John 12, right before the events of the Passion Week unfold, he says, now the ruler of this world has been cast out. And I think that's a reference to this spot in Revelation. This idea that because of the death of Jesus on our behalf, because of the blood of the Lamb, Satan's power, his, his victory, it's, it's, he's defeated. And it's just a matter of time before all that plays out and becomes an actual reality in earth, on earth. So our victory over Satan is through the Lamb. It comes from our humble witness, even to the point of death, that we've trusted in the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. Well, how does that impact you this morning? Well, you need to know, and you've got to remember that there's a snake in our neighborhood, and that snake is a liar. He's a scoundrel. He's the father of lies, and he will lie to you. Now, listen, most of the time when we think about Satan, we think of like some kind of, a, you know, Hollywood B-movie, horror movie, you know, presentation, right? Or we think about, uh, you know, the Lord of the Rings and, and Sauron and like a scary burning eye. If you ever see a, a burning eye, run the other way. Oh, my goodness, don't go that, right? I mean, of course, Satan is not going to do that. He's not going to wear a T-shirt that says, I am Satan. He's going to tempt you in ways that seem plausible. He's going to dress himself up in church clothes. And as remember my friend Luther said, when he fell out of heaven, when he's cast out of heaven, he was cast into the choir loft. No offense to the choir. The point is, Satan is not going to, he is not going to advertise, here's an attempt to spiritually subdue you. Here's an attempt to thwart your spiritual growth. He's a liar. Be advised, the devil is a liar. And he's lying to us. In our culture, see, in some cultures, it's interesting, at different times, different places, he has different strategies. In some cultures, he uses uh, animism, as we were talking about earlier, the, you know, worshiping uh, creation and this idea that there are spirits in physical things and those spirits have power over us. That's one expression. In other places, the worship of the sun and moon, right? That, that there's worship of creation itself, that that's one of the ways that Satan works to prevent people from uh, turning to the Lord and to cause spiritual havoc in their lives. But in our culture, he's done an interesting thing. His tactic has been to convince our culture that he doesn't exist. And then... With a cloak of invisibility, what is he doing? He's pushing an agenda. How? Just through worldliness. Through a worldview that doesn't put Jesus at the center of our lives. And it's not, it, do, it doesn't come to us in our culture, usually in religious clothing. Sometimes it does. But sometimes it's just in other seemingly innocent ways. Especially as we interact with so much media, you need to know that no media is neutral. None of it. So everything you see and hear, everything you read, there's, there's an agenda there. And, and it may not even be an explicit agenda of the, of the author or the creator, but it may be expressing 
a satanic agenda just through a godless worldview. And we can't hide from that. We're not called to hide from that. The, the whole point of Revelation is you can't hide from it. You need to be ready to be faithful. You need to be ready to give your word of testimony. You need to be ready to love not your life. Because there are things you're going to have to sacrifice if you're going to follow Jesus in this world. You can't bow to Rome the way all the good Roman citizens would do. You can't worship Caesar. You can't go to all the temples of the pagan gods and goddesses. And in our culture, though it looks differently, the same battle is there. We also are reminded here of the sweet truth of the gospel. And it was, it was forecasted way back in Genesis 3.15, right? That yes, there would be enmity, there would be conflict between the serpent and between the descendants of Eve. But there would be one descendant, one seed from Eve who would crush the head of the serpent. Decisive victory. And when did that happen? It happened when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. If you're here this morning and you have never trusted in Christ, you are missing out on the only option you have for victory over evil. The only way you can be victorious is through the blood of the Lamb. And Jesus is better than St. George. He died for our sins and rose from the dead. Maybe this morning is the first time that you would repent of your sin and trust in that great Savior. Because his victory is assured. Now, all of this explains our current situation, and that's where the vision kind of concludes in chapter 12. Watch verse 13. John goes on. He says, When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who had given birth to the male child. Now, this is where it gets important, okay? If the woman is the people of God, all right, and I think that's probably the best explanation, as we'll see in verse 17, um, if that's the case, what is Satan now doing? What is the dragon now doing on earth? He is pursuing or persecuting the woman who gave birth to the male child. Some translations say pursued. Uh, the older translations in CSB say persecuted. Again, Willie T. Uh, Willie Tyndale, he coined that one, persecuted. But the point is he's pursuing the woman in order to cause harm. So persecution works. Did it work? Well, watch verse 14. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she could fly from the serpent's presence to her place in the wilderness where she was nourished for a time, times, and half a time. There's again our three and a half uh, year period. What's the idea? The idea is what? God provides and rescues and makes provision for the church, even though it might be a difficult circumstance. The reference to the eagle's wings here is probably an allusion to the Exodus where God says, I bore you out of Egypt on eagle's wings, I rescued you. So here he gives those very wings to the woman. And again, the wilderness is tough, but it's not a place where God doesn't provide. Satan still pursues. Watch the dragon, verse 15. From his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river flowing after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. Again, there's Exodus uh, allusions here in the vision that there's water that's the opposition to God's people. But Verse 16, but the earth helped the woman. The earth opened its mouth up and swallowed the river, swallowed up the river that the dragon had spewed from his mouth. Some of you are thinking, I had no idea this was in the Bible. What are we talking about? First of all, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, you know, he, he was inspired by these images. But what's, what's going on here in Exodus 15? It's so simple. In Exodus 15, 
and the song of praise about God's deliverance of his people through the, the reed sea there in that moment in Exodus, the description in, in the poem is that the earth swallowed up the waters. Basically saying that's how God provided the victory. So this language here, it's just saying, just like God was victorious, rescuing his people out of slavery in Egypt, just like he was victorious then, he's still doing that work today. And just in case we missed the point, verse 17 really makes it all crystal clear. So the dragon was furious with the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. Who? Those who keep the commands of God and hold firmly to the testimony about Jesus also known as Christians. That's how we know the woman represents the people of God ultimately in the messianic mission because her offspring are the church. The church is the enemy of Satan and he's been defeated decisively in the cross and in the empty tomb. And so now what is Satan doing? Right now, temporarily, Satan is raging on earth because he knows his time is short. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 5, you've got to be careful about Satan. He, he's roaring like a lion. Right? He's a predator. And he's seeking how to devour you. You just need to be careful because there's a snake in our neighborhood. And that snake is raging against believers. And he wants to discourage you spiritually. He wants to attack you spiritually. And so often people get confused because they think about, oh, Satan's trying to possess me. Satan's not trying to possess you. What he's trying to do is influence what you believe and how you think. We know that. It's, it's made clear in 2 Corinthians 10 where Paul tells us that we are in a spiritual battle and you need to take every, he says, every thought captive. And we need to deal with these strongholds, destroy strongholds. And people misinterpret those strongholds and they, they talk about, it refers to this, that, the other. The strongholds are beliefs. They're false truths that are or false ideas about who God is that are presented, whether, again, in religious clothing or not. And Paul says that's spiritual warfare. It's what you believe about God. It's how you think about yourself and about God. That is where Satan is attacking. That's where this serpent is striking. That flood of water that's pictured coming out of his mouth, those, those are all the ways. It's just a visionary representation of all the ways Satan is coming for you and for me. But fear not. Why? Because God is still at work. He is still faithful. And even in the wilderness, he's made provision for us. Like in Ephesians 6, where he says you need to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. He's putting on his armor. And what is his armor? He talks about all the different ways. It's faith, salvation. Ultimately, what's the one weapon we have? What's the sword? It's the word of God. Because your greatest risk in spiritual battle is not that you'll be possessed by a demon. Your greatest risk is that you will start to think like a demon. That's where you're exposed. And you need the truth of the word of God to go to war. Satan is raging, but that rage is temporary. Our victory over Satan by the Lamb means what? It means his rage is in vain. So we need to know that because some days we're going to feel it. Some days more than others, to be honest, we're going to feel it. And we're going to wonder, is there a purpose? Is there something going on? And we can, we can remember and say, you know what? When we suffer, we can, we can tie this back to Satan, evil, rebellion against God. And we know that although it hurts for the moment, that he cannot be victorious. That yes, he's on earth and he's raging, but it's temporary. And what are we called to do? Well, we're called to keep the commands of God in verse 17 and hold firmly to the testimony about Jesus. 
We're called to love, not our lives. I circle back to that phrase because I think one of the things that we struggle with, I know it's one of the things I struggle with the most, it's not just loving my life, but it's loving certain things about my life. Things that I'm not willing to easily or readily give up for the Lord. Like my free time on the weekend. Like my security in my savings account. Like my amount of time I spend watching shows. Right? It's the little stuff, the dumb stuff. And the fact is that every one of us could be more useful to God's cause and his kingdom, but we struggle to love not our lives because we love our lives. And there's an opportunity here to say, hold on, as we endure this part of history, and it's just a phase, it's not the end yet, right? But in this, in this present age, as we endure Satan raging against the church, if we're going to be faithful followers of Jesus, we have to count the cost. I told you William Tyndale translated that phrase, love not their lives. William Tyndale was the first person to translate the Bible from Greek and Hebrew into English. Uh, many of the phrasings that we are so familiar with, my brother's keeper, all these kinds of languages, or all these kinds of you know, turns of, uh, of the tongue in, in English, uh, we can trace them back to Tyndale's work. But you need to know that Tyndale did that when it was illegal. He did that translation work at great peril to himself. And you know what? Tyndale was deceived by a friend, supposed friend, who became an, actually was an enemy, and he was put to death. The man who translated Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, as they love not their lives, loved not his life to the end. And he died, so his neighbors his friends growing up, his king, could read the Bible and come to faith in Jesus. And he said, that is more important than me living a long and comfortable life. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what you're going to face, but I do know that you will be tempted to love your life, to love it to the exclusion of following Christ. You probably know this morning where you're being tempted, those points of weakness in your own spiritual walk. And I would just encourage you that as you're tempted, you need to recognize you are under attack from the devil. That it is his mission to discourage the church and to prevent its advance. But you need to know, because Jesus was victorious in his death and resurrection, that Satan has already lost. He's just a big whining baby. Right? So we can acknowledge that and say, okay, all right, he's, he, he has not and cannot win, but therefore in the meantime... I need to choose to love not my life. I need to choose to walk by faith and trust in him. St. George, the real St. George, was, this is true, was a Roman soldier who became a Christian. And he died like around three, I think it was 300, 303, uh, AD 303. Uh, but he died as a martyr. And so maybe there's a reason why St. George and the dragon is a good way to remember the gospel. That we are, we are villagers and we face tough times. And there's a snake in our neighborhood. But we find victory not in conquering by our own power. We find victory by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony.
Brothers and sisters, let us love not our lives. Would you pray with me? We'll ask for God's help. Lord, we thank you so much for your provision for us in this part of Revelation, uh, a memorable spot, Lord, that reveals the nature of spiritual warfare and the fact that, yes, for the moment, your church is pursued and persecuted. And Lord, we thank you that uh, it's not always as bad as it could be. And we thank you that at this moment, we enjoy so much freedom and really even so much material blessing to advance the cause of your kingdom. But Lord, help us never to think that the advancement of your kingdom depends on money or freedom. It depends on your work. And Lord, we realize that more important than political freedom or tons of financial resources is the word of the testimony of your saints. So Lord, help us, we ask, to constantly remember that we are called to love not our lives, to obey your commands by faith, and Lord, to to share this good news that there is rescue available. There is one who slays the dragon. And it's not us, but Lord Jesus, it is you. And we thank you for crushing the head of the serpent by your death and resurrection. We thank you for the fact that no one can stop the arrival of your kingdom. In the meantime, we pray that you would help us to live in light of these truths. Help us as we face spiritual warfare every day to trust in you, to say no to the devil. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.